Hebrews 13. I know we're studying in chapter 10, but today is a very special day. So I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 13. As I just said, today is a very special day for our church. Get excited, people. Feel blessed because today we have the wonderful privilege of praying. And here's the context. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we have the privilege this morning of joining with thousands and thousands of other believers around the world praying for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, who are in bondage. And the book of Hebrews tells us that it is our Christian responsibility to do so. I want to exhort us now. I want us to look here in Hebrews chapter 13 in verse 3. Look what the word of God says. It says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. The context here, the idea here is Christians who are imprisoned for their faith. Christians who are being ill-treated for their faith. We have a privilege, a responsibility. We are commanded in scripture to remember them. Those who are in prison, being ill-treated as though we were with them. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It it pushes it on us a little more strong. It says in the New Living Translation, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, we are the American church. God has made us the American church. We shouldn't be overly ashamed about that. But we do need to realize that though that comes with privileges, it comes with great responsibility. And I would even say at times it affords us some disadvantages because you and I don't know what it means to suffer. And the American church, therefore, is an anomaly. The American church is an anomaly because suffering is the norm in the Christian faith. Men and women suffering for their faith. And this is a very special day because we as the church in America must refuse to be lulled to sleep in forgetting our brothers and sisters who are suffering for the faith around the world. We cannot neglect the responsibility to pray for them as though we were with them to feel their pain for ourselves. Because the Bible says that we are one body, you and I, Christians, we are the body of Christ under the headship of Jesus Christ. And as a body, then we have a common experience. The New Testament says that if one of us should rejoice, we all rejoice together. But if one of us should suffer, we all suffer together. And my brothers and sisters, there are men and women that are suffering around the world for their belief in Jesus Christ. And we are one with them. And today we need to recognize that and we need to engage with that reality. Do you realize that since the birth of Christianity, over 70 million Christians have been murdered for their faith. At this moment, there are more than 200 million Christians living in a context of persecution. Right now, 200 million Christians living in a context of persecution. It is estimated that this year, 175,000 Christians will die for their faith. 
My brothers and sisters, that is one every three minutes. It's not on CNN. It's not on Fox News. The BBC isn't reporting it, but it's a reality that we had better be aware of. And we have the privilege today of doing something about Do you realize that in the last hundred years, more Christians have been martyred for their faith than in the previous 1900? Do you realize that in these regions, the Mideast, Asia, Latin America, and Africa, Christians are being martyred at the rate of 19 per minute? This is a silent atrocity. And yet for you and I, this needs to be a real distinct reality because these are our brothers and sisters. They're not statistics. They're not numbers. They have names. They have faces. They have moms and dads and little girls and little boys and brothers and sisters. They have hurts and wounds and losses of which very few of us know, but they are our brothers and sisters. Now, as I said, we as a church in America are an anomaly. We are abnormal. The norm for Christianity throughout the centuries is men and women suffering for their faith. Jesus told us that this would be the reality. He said in Matthew 24, verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Notice the crux to the issue. Notice the key. Hated because of that name. The name that is above every name. The only name given among men by which men can be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. He said that those who are his would be hated because of his name among the nations. He said in John 15, 18 through 21, If the world hates you, You know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus was explicit. He didn't soft sell it. He let his followers know that because of his name and who he is, that those who call themselves by his name, Christians, Christians, would be persecuted. And so we're told in one of the last epistles in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. And yet it seems so foreign to you and I that we would be hated for our faith. And yet we see that being manifest in our culture this week in a brand new way. And I'm here to tell you something I've been telling you for years that it is going to get more and more difficult to be an authentic Christian in this country in the days to come. There's no question about it. We are living in a society that is becoming increasingly anti-Christ. And as it becomes more and more anti-Christ, it will become more and more Christian. And it will be more difficult for those who want to live out authentic Christianity to do so free from penalty. 
Thus far, we have America been an anomaly. But if I understand eschatology and my Bible right, that will not always be the case for you and I. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 warns us and says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer. Because what we have are two kingdoms in conflict. That's what we're talking about here. We have two kingdoms in conflict. We have the domain of darkness and we have the kingdom of the beloved son. The domain of darkness, the kingdom of the world that is subject to the evil one, 1 John says, Ephesians 2 says, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And these two are in opposition to one another. And there is continually a spiritual battle being waged. And on occasion, more than we would like to admit, it manifests itself in the physical realm. And persecution is just that. A manifestation in the physical of the spiritual reality. The battle that is unfolding in the heavenlies. There are two kingdoms, and they are in conflict. Now, persecution throughout history has come from religious leaders, governments, and the general population. Religious leaders, governments, and the general population. That's what we see from the birth of the church through the book of Acts to the modern day. For example, in the book of Acts, we see in chapter 5 persecution against the disciples of Jesus Christ from religious leaders. It says in Acts 5, verse 17 and 18, But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. So here we see apostles of Jesus Christ put in jail for their belief and their proclamation in and of Jesus Christ by the Jewish religious leaders. So persecution from religious leaders. We also see governmentally sanctioned persecution in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now about the time Herod the king, about that time, Herod the king laid his hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, a brother of John, put to death with a sword, and he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So government sanctioned persecution against the church in the book of Acts. As the church continues to mature, now we see the persecution not only coming from religious leaders and governments, but from the general population. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 24. It says, The crowd rose up together against them. The them is Paul and Silas here. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So we have, from the birth of the church and moving through the early history of it, persecution from religious leaders, from governments, and from the general population. And we see the same opposition today. We see persecution against the church of Jesus Christ from the religious leaders of Islam. We also see it from Hindu religious leaders. 
Did you know that between August and October of this year, 500 Christians were murdered in the area of Osira in India by Hindu religious leaders? And untold numbers have been and are currently being stalked, tortured, imprisoned, and beaten by Islamic religious leaders. We have government-sanctioned persecution in countries like China, Eritrea, Laos, and North Korea. And we see persecution against the disciples of Jesus Christ coming from the general population in places like Sudan and Turkey, Saudi Arabia, India, Pakistan, and most recently, Mexico. I've shared with you in the last couple weeks the story of Pastor Tez. Two weeks ago, we got word just before second service started that he had been abducted in Tijuana. We're loosely connected with him through Mexican Medical, which is a missionary organization, uh, the president of which goes to our church, and we support and minister with them. And uh, Pastor Tez is part of their pastoral council in Tijuana. Well, he was abducted by criminals in Tijuana and held for a million-dollar ransom. I shared this with you two weeks ago. And we prayed that day. And to the glory of God, that week he was released by those criminals. Now the news reports have been slow to come in. And just in the last couple of days, I've gotten reports of what happened. Remember, you guys prayed for his safety and deliverance. I want to read to you now exactly how it happened. This is unbelievable. Listen, this news report is from persecution.org. It says, Pastor Tech related that he had been driven to a drop-off point in the back of a pickup truck that was also carrying buckets of gravel and sand. He said that his kidnappers dumped him on the ground, covered him loosely with the sand and gravel, then shot at him with what sounded like automatic weapons. He remembered praying while the bullets hit around him, but none of them actually struck him. After waiting for a while after the shooting, Pastor Tech was able to move the sand and gravel off of them, enough to be found by arriving police officers who were apparently attracted by the sound of gunfire. Yeah, praise the Lord. I mean, this is not North Korea. This is not Pakistan. This is not Saudi Arabia. This is next door. This is Tijuana. This is right next door. They intended to murder him that early morning. And the Lord deflected the bullets from an automatic weapon and they missed those chumps. (laughs) Now, he also relays in that article that he felt the prayers of the saints. He said he felt the prayers of the saints and you church were praying. He said he felt the nearness of God and of the body of Christ. He was held for 11 days and tortured repeatedly and he felt the prayers of the saints. Now, what we do in light of all those being persecuted around the world today is we pray. That has always been the protocol of the church. In Acts chapter 5, Peter was arrested for preaching Jesus. And we read, excuse me, in Acts 12 verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. It was the protocol of the church. When there was trouble, 
and persecution to pray. We see the same thing in the book of Romans. Paul speaking now in chapter 15 says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered. We see the same in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and He will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men. We're going to pray for deliverance today. Deliverance today because our brothers and our sisters are being subject to perverse and evil men. We'll pray for deliverance today. Philippians 1, Paul writes and says, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're going to pray today that brothers and sisters in prison and tormented and threatened would have that same perspective, that they would love Jesus Christ more than their own lives, that they would have such boldness and such faith. Notice the faith of Paul there. He says, for I know. There was no question in his mind that the prayers of the saints would change the situation. I don't know what your doctrine about prayer is, but the Bible teaches that prayer changes things. Every time the Bible talks about prayer, it is in the context of changing people, situations, and nations. The Bible teaches that prayer changes things. And so we're going to pray for change today. We're going to pray that the chains would come off. We're going to pray that prison doors will be open. We're going to pray that the children of martyrs would be provided for. We're going to pray that jailers and tormentors would come to Jesus Christ. We're going to pray that nations that are now closed will be open one day. We are going to storm the gates of heaven and see our world changed. Prayer changes things. You ask Pastor Tez, he will tell you prayer changes things. An encouragement from history. There are 210 countries that have lengthy histories of persecution and murder against Christians, which are now fully evangelized. 210 countries that went from hunting, stalking, and murdering Christians to being fully evangelized. Prayer changes things. We're going to do ministry around the world today. 
We're confined here right now at this moment in Carpinteria, but we'll do ministry around the world. We'll do ministry in Saudi Arabia. We'll do ministry in Indonesia. We'll do ministry in China. We'll do ministry in India and in Pakistan. We will do ministry in Laos, in Eritrea, where 2,000 or more Christians are in prison, many of them in metal cargo containers in the desert heat. We will do ministry today. And they will experience the prayers of the saints and the mighty working of God. I have this testimony from an underground church pastor in Cambodia. He says, quote, In the death camps, I knew that there were people praying for me. It gave me the spiritual strength I needed to live as a Christian and to trust God. It is the same for everyone in the camps and prisons today. End quote. Prayer changes things. We'll do ministry around the world. That you could pray informed prayers now. I'm going to show you a short video, which is a snapshot of persecution around the world in the last six months. Indonesia, churches in Malaku province fear extremists may be reviving a campaign of anti-Christian violence after four believers were murdered in one village. The village on Seram Island was almost destroyed during an assault by Muslim militants from a neighboring island. They burnt the school, three churches and crops. They murdered four Christians, including a six-year-old girl and her grandmother, and wounded 56 others. Elsewhere in West Java, hundreds of militants tried to burn down a church, and in Jakarta, extremists attacked a religious tolerance rally at which some 200 Christians and Muslims had gathered to call for greater religious freedom. Several protesters were injured when members of the Islamic Defenders Front rushed at them with sticks and flags, shouting, Repent or die! And in Papua, the International Crisis Group warns that simmering tensions between Muslims and Christians... In Saudi Arabia, Gulf News reports that a father murdered his daughter after discovering she converted to Christianity. The man cut out her tongue and burned his own daughter to death. Earlier, the girl wrote about the growing hostility she was feeling from her family after they'd had a conversation about religion. Her father was a member of Saudi's religious police and on the Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. According to news reports, he may be charged with committing an honor killing, a significantly less serious crime than murder. And Saudi religious leaders, instead of condemning the crime, are using the story as a cautionary tale, blaming the Internet for drawing young Muslims away from Islam. In Iran, which is Shia, a Christian leader and his wife died after being beaten up by the police. Abbas Amiri and his wife Sakina died after police raided their house church. Observers say increasing numbers of non-Muslims have been detained and beaten in Iran this year. Christians make up a tiny minority of Iran's population, just over half a percent. Evangelism of Muslims is illegal and converts may face the death penalty, though that's seldom used. But a number of pastors have been murdered because of their faith. What divides Sunnis from Shias are the interpretations of Islamic literature and the question of who heads up the worldwide Islamic community. The suicide bombings in Iraq are a modern-day eruption of that age-old conflict. 
But both Shia and Sunni scholars believe that God will punish Muslims in the afterlife if they change their faith. And some want the authorities to enforce that punishment here on earth. So in nations under strict Islamic law, Christian evangelists and converts face severe persecution. Another story the authorities preferred to keep out of the media concerns China's treatment of North Korean refugees who are fleeing famine and some of the worst persecution on earth. Each year, China sends back thousands to face imprisonment, torture, and even execution in their homeland. Three tell their harrowing stories on Run For Your Life, a new website launched by Release International. Here's an example. I strongly believe that God's plan, which called me to China, is to train me and send me back to North Korea to evangelize my people. Even though I may be put in prison or killed, I will go. Once I was arrested and sent back to North Korea, I was put in prison. I suffered forced labor for about 10 months. As an evangelist, when I go back to North Korea, it's very dangerous. A Christian woman was executed due to her faith in Jesus, so I also may be put in prison or put in a political prison camp or killed. If you think things are tough for Christians in China, then spare a thought for your brothers and sisters in neighboring Laos. The authorities have arrested or detained at least 90 Christians in recent weeks, following raids on three provinces. The Lao authorities see evangelical Christianity as a plot to undermine the communist revolution. During a recent fact-finding visit to Laos, Release International met Abigail, not her real name, whose husband was murdered for his faith. Abigail, whose identity we're protecting, is continuing her husband's work, looking after the churches he set up. He was away on church business when news came that his body had been found. He'd been brutally murdered. Before he left, Abigail sensed a dread that something like this could happen. I always say, please don't come home late, because you have enemies who will try to kill you. Don't worry, he replied, but I said, how can I not worry, because our children are still young. If something happened to you, how will I live? To begin with, Abigail was distraught and angry. I was crying, crying and crying, and I was asking God why he took my husband away, even he is the one that the church and the people need more than me. Sometimes I get really angry and also my children, but I always tell them the punishment is up to God, not up to us. Even today, Abigail doesn't know who killed her husband though she has her suspicions. Jason, I believe he was killed because he served God. The church is going well. We have been training more Christian disciples and leaders. Now Abigail has taken on her husband's work, caring for the Christians he brought to the Lord. Days after his death, she called for Christians in Laos to continue to fearlessly preach the gospel. Her message today is from Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of any wrongs. But what if Abigail were to come face to face with her husband's killer? 
What would she tell him? I would tell him about the God's love. Even like I did something wrong, and then he always forgave me. So I would tell him I love him because God loves him too, and God will forgive him. Christians in Laos face a choice of worshiping in churches heavily restricted by the state, or going underground. The stakes are high. They risk being seen as enemies of the state, of coming under surveillance, being arrested, imprisoned without trial, and tortured to renounce their faith. But the harder the authorities stamp on Christianity, the more it spreads. The work Abigail's husband began will continue. I don't know who killed him, but I only know that God has planned for the church. Especially for the people to grow up and become strong in the faith. It's been described as the worst ever attack on Christians in India. At least 56 people have been killed, and up to 70,000 forced to flee their homes as riots against Christians rock Arissa. And those riots are spreading to Karnataka, Kerala, and other states. And tension is even rising in the capital, New Delhi. In what some observers are calling ethnic cleansing, right-wing Hindus are attacking Christians and burning their homes, businesses, churches, and even orphanages. A mob burned a young woman alive as she tried to protect the children in one orphanage. The violence erupted after Maoist guerrillas killed a prominent Hindu leader and four of his disciples. Even though the communists claimed responsibility, Hindu extremists say Christians killed their leader. Because he opposed Hindus converting to Christianity, now those militants are forcibly reconverting Christians to Hinduism under threat of death. Tensions have been simmering for some time as many so-called untouchables, the Dalits, turn to Christianity. CBN's George Thomas reports on the background to the violence. The Hindu mob threatened us, saying that India belongs to Hindus. Christians do not belong here. They warned us that if we rebuilt the churches, they would kill us. They would break our body into pieces, just like they broke our church into pieces. Do you think that there's going to be more violence in k a n d a m a l The man whose group is suspected of taking part in the attacks tells CBN News that peace will come only when Christians in India stop proselytizing. But Jandal and other radical groups are trying to turn India into a Hindu nation. What many people would even call a fundamentalist state. The goal of the Hindu radicals is to destroy India's reputation as a secular and pluralistic democracy, and replace it with an explicitly Hindu identity. Ram Madhav is a spokesman for the RSS, a right-wing Hindu supremacist outfit. His group claims that Hindus are the original creators of Indian culture, and that they are descendants from an Aryan race. All others are aliens or invaders. He may be a Muslim. He may be a Christian. He may be a Jew. Similarly, India belongs to Hindus. It's a Hindustan. These and other extremist views form their ideology, known as Hindutva. Hindutva ideology is basically fascist, that propagates one nation, one language, one people, one caste, one religion. While the number of people who subscribe to the Hindutva ideology is relatively small. Their influence and popularity are growing in Indian society, and they're especially angry that Indian Christians and foreign missionaries are sharing the gospel with lower caste Hindus 
known as untouchables or Dalits. Dalits make up one-fifth of India's one billion-plus population. They live on the margins of society and are often considered by Hindus as less than human. But a growing number of them are turning to Christianity. On arrival of Christianity, as they started loving God, they have been treated like human beings by Christians, which is unacceptable to the higher caste people. Their conversions aren't without a cost. Indian newspapers and human rights groups document the almost daily attacks against Dalits and other Christians. We are asking the Lord to give us more boldness, to give us the strength to bear His name and to stand strong in the face of terrible persecution. Analysts warn that unless these radical Hindu groups are reined in, violence against Christians will continue. Eritrea, there are reports that the regime is planning to bring treason charges against several Christian pastors held without charge for the past four years. The penalty for treason is death in this single-party state. The authorities banned independent Protestant churches in 2002, considering them a threat to national security. In the constitution, it says that every citizen is free to worship whatever he likes. But our government is also a Marxist indoctrinated government. They want to break the willpower of, of these Christians. They want to make, make them obedient, to, to, to submissive. So that's why they, they beat them. The government is trying everything he can to crack down the religious freedom. If they found me praying or encouraging my friends in Christ, they will take me and put me in prison. They try to force us to deny our faith and beat us when we refused. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard to resist when they beat us. But I know Christ myself. I believe in Christ. Christ is my savior. Meanwhile, the arrests continue. Police recently detained 25 Christians after they were found praying for their nation on Eritrea's Independence Day. Soon afterwards, they arrested another 34 members of the Light of Life Church. Eritrean Christians who are arrested face torture and detention in appalling conditions, sometimes in steel shipping containers in the heat of the desert. Some 2,000 Christians are in jail for their faith in this small and sparsely populated land. The equivalent number in the UK would be 24,000 believers behind bars. Brothers and sisters, as ugly as that is, those are the facts. And now we need to pray. That's what the church does. That's the protocol. We pray. And when we pray, we need to remember what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness. And so we battle with that in mind. Some of you got a flyer when you came in that will give you ways to pray. I'll just mention some others. 
We need to pray that these prisoners would experience complete trust in God, that they would have endurance, that they would love Christ more than life itself, that they would love their enemies, that they will rejoice in sharing the sufferings of Jesus so that they will rejoice even more when Christ comes. We need to pray that they will remember that they have an unbelievable future glory. Some more prayer points. We need to pray for those in prison that they would know they're not forgotten today. We need to pray for the needs of the families of martyrs to be abundantly met. We need to pray that Christians would love those who are persecuting them and their nations. We need to pray that the persecuted Christians would preach the gospel boldly and bravely in the face of opposition. We need to pray that the government and prison officials would be drawn into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that God would Romans 8.28 this thing. And we need to pray that restricted nations would be opened. And then as you're praying, we'll put some more prayer points up here. But now we need to do what Nehemiah told his people to do when they are faced with great opposition. He said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters and for your wives and for your houses. And we do it in prayer and it's a spiritual battle. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just make little groups. You're going to turn the people next to you, groups of two, three, five, four, whatever. I know that for some of you, this is uncomfortable, but how much more uncomfortable are they? So let's get over ourselves and let's practice the privilege of prayer today. Let's pray for the prisoners. Grab each other and pray, church.